Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Subconscious, a podcast made by two friends over two drinks, showing our prowess in sound physics by being huddled alone in a closet with our microphones. My name is Joseph, and I'm joined by my co-host Colin. We're two longtime friends currently living on opposite ends of the world, sharing our catch-ups in the most millennial way possible. A podcast. Good morning, Joseph. Good, good morning to you as well. Not gonna lie, 9.30 a.m. I woke up for this. I'm very proud that I'm awake for, at this hour. Yeah, pretty early <laughs> uh, for a uni student, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, transitioning to our drinks, this is also why I have Hong Kong-styled Yi Ha, which is hot milk tea. Hey. Yeah. So also, I kind of low-key forgot we needed <laughs> drinks for this, so um, <laughs> I just went to, like, my, like, dining hall, or, <laughs> like, yeah. um, what do you call it? Uh canteen and they had like mm. tea so i just kind of made um you know hot milk tea <laughs> with um sugar um some really dark red tea and condensed tea? milk don't you mean no, uh... black tea <laughs> <laughs> um not condensed milk sorry evaporated milk actually do you know what the difference is um condensed milk is sweet evaporated milk isn't that's what that's what i'm definitely sure about i don't know how you actually you know make them though but um yeah that's not you know that's not my uh my expertise for today so perhaps next (laughs) time i think we always say this like maybe next time we'll explain this thing that we don't know for this episode but (laughs) it doesn't happen (laughs) maybe we can have like a we can have an episode where it's just rapid fire like all the questions that we've asked so far Ooh, that'll be pretty good like just go through a lot of things Mm-hmm. Good ideas. Yeah. Today I'm having a long black to start off the day. Um, just just coffee basically. Um, good old cup of myself. <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, so you know how we've talked about the fact that like we tend not to drink coffee for the effects of caffeine. Yes. Yeah. Well, since <laughs> semester has started. <laughs> that has been completely obliterated and i am sustaining myself on the power of caffeine (laughs) hey whatever floats your boat yeah and i think i mentioned this before how like i would actually get sleepy when i have coffee yeah or like have a pretty bad crash right Mm -hmm. um but i feel like i've found the reasoning to why oh okay why um, well, like, I don't have, like, a solid scientific basis for any of this, but, like, I can only <laughs> guess just based on, like, how I feel, how my body feels. My body's mm-hmm. a temple. <laughs> um, and I can only guess it's because, like, I get really dehydrated when I drink coffee. Okay. Because, um, like, yeah, caffeine's a diuretic and everything. Um, so recently, uh, I've been chasing all of my, like, coffee sips with, like, big water gulps. <laughs> um and it's actually like yeah like i feel a lot more alert really for a longer sustained period of time and i guess also because like i'm drinking the coffee slower because i'm chasing it with water all the time yeah um a friend of mine told me to drink a bunch of water first before like when if i wake up and have coffee before i have coffee because Mm. i don't know she told me like oh you're dehydrated that's why um you know you get that massive crash where you feel sleepy afterwards but i haven't yeah. tried it i don't know i don't want to dare you know ex- sacrifice the day where i crash at 2 p.m mm. yeah yeah i mean if you're like working fine already like there's no need for caffeine yeah 
I feel like before we start, we're going to quickly show our um, incredible gratitude to our now um, editor, Janet, who's been helping us you know, <laughs> deal with all the editing. We used to do this. You know, we used to do our own editing, but, you know, life got in the way. We're still in uni, but Janet did gra- just graduate with a music degree. So <laughs> what? there's someone with an expertise. So, you know, hopefully mm-hmm. today the mic will be loud enough for her on my end. But, uh... <laughs> yeah. Just, 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 a, just a little shout out to Janet. But, um, yeah. And anyways, your topic, Joe. <laughs> so my topic today has been heavily inspired by a workshop I had around bioethics. Okay. Uh, I don't know how much you discuss ethics and morality in your courses. Mm-hmm. Uh, although considering that um, it's not a science course, you probably do it a lot more than we do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, usually in science, it tends to just kind of be a side note for your first two years because you're just being like stuffed with content. Um, but now, since I'm getting closer to the end of my degree, the emphasis has increased a bit more on like, you know, ethics and morality of doing research or um, like medical practices. And yeah, the workshop was really interesting to me because it kind of demonstrated how like our ethical standards have evolved over time. And I thought that the area of bioethics was really interesting because it explains actually a lot about how our modern research and medical conduct is framed. And something that is pretty topical right now is drugs and vaccine trials. Mm -hmm. Um, But before I get too ahead of myself, uh, I'll just list out exactly what those principles are. Okay. So, the set of principles that underpin ethical research and medical conduct involving humans is, one, respect for autonomy. So, the patient has the right to refuse or choose their treatment, or like, um, if it's in research terms, like, refuse, like they can leave the, re- the, the research trial whenever they want. Mm-hmm. At any time, I'm assuming, right? Yes, at any time with no legal repercussions or no, like, yeah. There shouldn't be any contractual obligations for them to stay. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, The second one is beneficence. I can't say this word. Beneficence? Beneficence? Beneficence. Okay. We got that. So it's like a a practitioner should act in the best interest of the patients. So for the benefit of the patient. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And the third one is non-maleficence. So yep. not the, <laughs> not the, uh, the, not a bad, <laughs> don't do bad things. Yeah. Don't do bad things. And not the, not the play, not the, not the musical. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think you might've heard this adage before. It's used a lot in like medical dramas, but it's also like an oath that doctors take up, which is first do no harm. Yep. I feel like that one's pretty self-explanatory. And then the fourth one is justice. So it's a consideration of how we distribute um, what is essentially scarce health resources and the decision of like who gets what kind of treatment. Yeah. So uh, I'll first expand on autonomy and justice because I feel like there's, yeah, there's some interesting points in here. Um, so the principle of autonomy is rooted in the rights of individuals uh, to self-determination. So that's a pretty like, you know, I guess human rights based sort of principle um Mm -hmm. and you know it involves respecting an individual's ability to make their own choice based on their own opinions and autonomy is quite an interesting principle 
in modern healthcare practices because um, it's tended towards this direction because autonomy is also kind of synonymous with this focus on like quality of life. Okay. Yeah. Because traditionally, like treatments have always just been kind of framed in a way to salvage duration of life. Yeah. So like as long as like you live, it doesn't matter how you get there. It's like, um, mm -hmm. like for example, if you got poisoned, like you just lob off a limb. <laughs> Like, <laughs> there's not really a consideration towards, like, the quality of life that you would have afterwards, right? Yeah. Um, and so the outcome of the patient is at the heart of a lot of modern medical practices and research, um, where traditionally it was quite paternalistic, where, you know, the doctor mm -hmm. knew best in terms of treatment and, like, what you should get. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so this shift into autonomy in modern uh, medicine uh, is in part due to this change of viewing autonomy as an indicator of health. Because, in fact, a lot of diseases are characterized by the patient's loss of autonomy, um, whether that be like a mental or physical state. So, you know, diseases like Alzheimer's, where yeah, you're like per people suffering from Alzheimer's get more delirious as they age mm -hmm. and un are unable to like make clear decisions for themselves. Um, and so, yeah, like in modern medical practices, mental and physical states are constantly being evaluated uh, because the ability for the patient to make decisions is so important and is like a pillar that like, I guess, grounds the ethical principles behind it. And next is justice. Uh, justice is quite interesting because it's often linked with concepts of equality, right? Um, mm -hmm. But the concept of justice that underpins medical conduct um, can be summed up as the need to treat equals equally, but also unequals unequally. And uh, this is like a pretty heavy oversimplification. But to clarify a little bit of the nuances, it just means like heavy consideration for how we treat, let's say, vulnerable populations. Um, and that can be, uh, and the way that like you interpret vulnerable populations can be in many ways, whether that be like social demarcations, like socioeconomic position, like whether or not someone... Uh, and financially receive uh, is financially able to receive treatment um, or like very clear biological ones like uh, the treatment of a pregnant woman because physiologically it's way different from just treating someone who isn't pregnant right yeah um, and so getting on to more contentious points uh, the remaining two Beneficence and non-maleficence are quite interesting because while they seemingly work together, they also create a sort of dilemma. Um, yeah. Because beneficence is rooted on the belief that there should be a greater gain that benefits people based on like the research conducted or the tra treatment being given to a patient. While non-maleficence is rooted in the idea that no harm should be done to the patient to the best of our abilities. Mm -hmm. And... So with that, I kind of wanted to bring up the topic of vaccine development because not only because of current events, but also because how well it kind of exemplifies this dilemma. Mm. And for that, uh, I'd like to ask what you know about clinical trials. I think my knowledge comes from the recent events of COVID. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But I do understand there's like various like three stages or like in a very... I'm, I'm not claim how many stages, like, <laughs> mm -hmm. but like, I think intuitively you would develop a scientific basis, which you believe will work towards counteracting 
the disease via lab without actual human trials first. Mm -hmm. And then you try it on animals, which that already is with like a very ethically charged stage. And then you go through human trials, which is the final stage. And then once you can like, you know, confirm all, then you kind of then identify this as a vaccine or not a vaccine. Mm. So yeah, like that's that's pretty good overview of it. Um, yeah, and I'll just give a quick rundown of like, I guess the specific phases that go on, right? Because I think you've heard yeah. a lot of these terms like phase one trials, phase two trials or whatever on the news and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So as quick of an overview as possible, usually these drugs or vaccines that are being tested, uh, they either go through animal testing first, or they can be tested on like cell cultures of humans. So not actual humans, but just like yep. cells. Um, and then they go through um, the four phases of human testing. Uh, although the, the main ones are the first three, basically. And so phase one trials um, are just purely based on evaluating safety. Uh, so it's a small group of people, usually around 20 to 80. And it's just to determine whether or not like it's safe to use on humans. Mm -hmm. Like, so the drug interactions with the body or vaccine interactions with the body, safe dosages, etc. Phase yep. two trials uh, evaluate the efficacy. So whether or not it actually works. Yep. Um, That'll be important. Also at what range. <laughs> yeah, pretty important. Yes. But usually phase two trials are done with smaller, uh, larger groups of people than phase one, but okay. still relatively small. So groups of like hundreds or three hundreds um, of people. And then phase yep. three is the critical stage. Because just because your drug works for one person doesn't mean it works for everyone. Yeah. And so phase three trials are basically used to confirm effectiveness and then monitor the side effects and compare it to like other treatments that like perhaps uh, there's already a gold standard for treatment of the current disease you're looking at and you're comparing it and everything. And so um, the fourth phase happens after the drug is released into the market and more studies are done to kind of see the long-term effects on the community and everything like that. So it's not as like a critical uh, phase compared to the other three, but it is important right. in terms of knowing what exactly, like how it affects the community and mm -hmm. the human population. Um, so in the case of vaccine testing, phase three trials are actually very difficult because you essentially have to give a group of participants the vaccine that you've made. And this concept of non-maleficence means that you just have to wait. They, they, you're giving them, the, giving them the drug and then they go about their daily lives and then you just have to observe whether or not they contract the, the disease. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult because, you know, you're introducing a lot of like different variables, right? Like, oh, uh, maybe they don't interact with people a lot. And, you know, right now, clearly, no one's interacting with people a lot because it's the safe thing to do. It's like the non-maleficence aspect of this ethical principle right yeah and um but this is this makes it really slow to develop the vaccine because you don't get results until like two or three years because you have to observe these people for that long and even then if it comes if it turns out that your vaccine doesn't work then that's two or three years gone right yeah uh so the topic of like challenge trials has been brought up uh which is instead of just giving the drug to a bunch of participants and letting them do their own thing and then observing the results. Uh, essentially, you infect your participants with the disease that you're trying to combat mm -hmm. along with the administration of your drug. 
Okay. Uh, and, you know, obviously this can only be done if your participants have the autonomy to make that decision and they understand the risks involved. Um, yeah. But this is kind of, it exemplifies this, this dilemma between beneficence and non-maleficence. Because in the case of COVID, um, there's no treatment, there's no effective treatment that we know of. Yeah. Whereas if you're testing for another disease, um, there might be existing treatments for, let's say, like the common cold, right? You can mitigate the, the effects of the common cold. Um, not that you can like cure it or anything, but you, like we have relatively good um, drugs for mitigating the symptoms of the common cold and everything. So if we're developing a vaccine for the common cold and you're testing it using a challenge trial, then it's like if something bad happens or the participant gets really sick, you still have ways to treat them. Yep. And so that goes into the idea of like, do no harm. Um, but with COVID, there's just this gray area because on the one hand, speeding up the trials could potentially save many lives because thousands of people are being infected with COVID every day. And the mortality rate is higher than normal, than normal flu strain. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's just, it's interesting because these two pillars are so important, but there's a definite gray area of like balancing out how much can we say that this trial or research is being done for the benefit of people or um, at the same time knowing the risks involved and being able to communicate that to like potential participants about the risk that they're taking. Mm. And so in any kind of research or treatment method, there's this delicate balance of all things, all of these things constantly, like the responsibility to minimize harm uh, and then acting in good faith uh, so that, you know, practitioners are conducting this research to benefit people rather than just to like find out some niche effect or whatever. Yeah. And also the responsibility to give and present all this information faithfully to the participants in a way that communicates all the details, but also doesn't like shut their brain off and like they gloss over it immediately. Right. Yeah. And yeah, so I guess that's all the stuff I learned about bioethics this week. Hey. Yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And it's like, you know, it's always going to be quite obviously, I guess, quite um quite relevant because every decision is an ethical decision. And mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, like you can use so many different schools of thought to just like, like you can argue, oh, good intention, so it's fine. And like mm. it's banking based on facts of the science in phase one and two that the intended and hoped for, you know, um, effect of the cure will be realized after phase three. That's why you're just putting a bit of risk. But, you, yeah. but like, but, you know, consequentially, as a consequentialist the like theory, or like if you think about result-oriented ethics, um, you just don't know yet until it actually happens. And if it does turn out yeah. not great, then, you know, the whole pillar of justice, do no harm, might not be exactly met. But then again, it's hard because it's in the future. You can't really predict the future. Yeah. And if you don't so do it, anything, like, there's it's no also the same. to improve. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's like, it's, it's, it also seems rather romantic to kind of think every decision people make in good conscience, it's going to be good. 
all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't like the idea of like, oh, because of good results or like, you know, it was like a compromise, a sacrifice. So it's justified. It is. Mm. But like the fact that something did happen, whether it, you know, even the smallest bad thing that did happen, it still happened. You know, bad, yeah. good and bad things can coexist. <laughs> It's not just one, I guess. It's yeah. It, it's really hard since you really need. A, it's a really tough thing to just kind of merge, like practical ethics, with a pandemic. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but that's super interesting. Disclaimer. Um, I think there's a vacuum thing going outside. So if anyone hears it, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I apologize for Janet for um, not knowing how to background noise cancel properly yet. But, you know. <laughs> um, anyways, back to my topic. Not back to, but we're going to my topic. Do you remember back in high school? Yeah. Or like middle school where in humanities or arts, like there's a, a bunch of our friends did like a family tree investigation or like looked into like family history. Did we? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, no, we didn't. We didn't. But I think like some of our friends did. Like, you know, one of those free projects that you can do anything. Oh, wait. Was this like year 11 or something? Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking. Like, Oh, yeah. okay. I didn't actually know people yeah. did that. <laughs> <Oops>. <laughs> okay. Well, some people did that. But guess what? Um, during like the early modern period, if you're not, the whole concept of like documenting genealogical ancestry yeah. was already present on a very like intellectual and emotional level okay. by collecting um, written testimonies and sometimes pictures of people that you felt connected with and met once into a book. Oh. And this book is um, often referred to, and I am assuming in Germany, called Stammbuch. Okay. <laughs> Sorry for pronunciation, or the album Amicorum, Amicorum. But this roughly translates to um, their Latin Friends Collection. And from now on, I'm going to ref refer to this thing as Friends Collection to avoid <laughs> insulting countries. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so this is perhaps better characterized. Um, so the Friends Collection, this word is probably better understood um, and I believe um, the term stud book or uh, stambuk is also popular um, nowadays, but in English, it kind of means the, the genealogy of horses or animals. So that's why I'm going to stick with a friend's collection. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just, you know, setting up the whole context for this. But basically, back in 15, the 1530s, yeah, the students of this German university called Wittenberg University used these friend collection books um, to ensure that their relationship with one another is sustained by um, having each other exchange signatures, dedications, and sayings. So it's kind of like, you know, how we did yearbook signings like a few years ago, you know? You have people or your friends write on them. Yep. But um, these books are blank. They're not yearbooks, obviously. Um but the thing is, like, these entries are from people from all walks of life. Um, there's also famous reformers. There are some well-known scholars. And um, they kind of use this book to kind of, like, I guess, secure or prove their documented visits or interactions with um, socially and scientifically significant people. 
Um, so like the LinkedIn of the 16th century, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And the use of these books was actually widespread until the early 19th century. So why am I telling you this? Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, recently on LinkedIn, I came across <laughs> a post by Sotheby's, you know, one of the major art dealerships or auction houses in the world. And it turns out that just last week, and we're recording this on the 4th of September, um, a particular friend collection book was sold to a library in, or I think it's a really prestigious library called Herzog August Library mm-hmm. in uh, Germany for 2.8 million euros. Okay. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it's 400 years old, basically, mm-hmm. or it's slightly more than that. And um, it belongs to a merchant and art agent called Philip Heinhofer. Mm-hmm. And this friend collection is a collection of a bunch of man, uh, illustrated illustrations, handwritten entries by politically powerful people such as Roman emperors, the king of Denmark and Norway, just a name drop. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, like it, it's a collection that... Uh, think what 1596 to 1633 so almost 40 years of like you know signings and signatures 40 or 400 and 40 like 40 years like it was 400 years ago that oh, was created yes. yep, but yep. he collected over 40 years of like these entries from different people you know from mm-hmm. his quote-unquote friends and interactions yeah and this friend collection is considered an outstanding work of art because of its um, furnishing and more than 100 illustrations within the book. And I'm going to send you a link right now so you can kind of like check out visually what it looks like. So I'm going to quickly throw some factual information about the book for you. Um, It's 227 pages long, which is okay, whatever. But the entries um, consists pages of personal sentences or poems in different languages, including German, French, Latin, and Italian. Um, but the significance of these, like, I guess, illustrations is that Heinhofer, the dude, um, had a lot of entries that were illustrated by renowned artists, um, such as Joseph Heinz and Jacopo Legosi. I'm sorry. and um you know these albums can it's just like these richly decorated pages of drawings and baroque styles there's also floral patterns um uh, including tulips which were new and precious in europe at the time in like you know late 16th century and uh to emphasize you know the craft aspect of the thing it has a lace binding and a binding that's made out of purple velvet. And originally, Heinhofer used a screw fastening that allowed pages to be exchanged. So oh. it was not just any book. Like, he kind of put a lot of work into it, you know? Yeah, I, I see the images right now. It's just like... Right? It is legitimately like a work of art. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I'm, a, I'm not going to go visually analyze it in any way. I just thought it looked pretty. And it was pretty interesting um, that this book friendship book um, got sold <laughs> for that amount of money. But, you know, this is enough information for me. I'm not going to go on about it. I think if you want to know more about the detailed history, the origins, specifics, specifics, and one specifics, 
Um, <laughs> I'll throw a link in the show notes. Um, but I think just looking at the book, uh, the penmanship and the illustrations itself, um, you know, it's just so pretty. And if have you seen the movie Midsommar by Ari Aster? I have it was not. like this. Okay, so you know the floral patterns that you see. It looks really mm. similar, not completely the same, but like you know, it's got that same vibe. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's also like the fact that it was so well preserved as a four hundred year old book, right? Mm. Yeah, and actually, like, I have a hard time like grasping the fact that it's like don't like dyes usually like wear out in that period? Like, yeah. I think they do, and like also exposure to like UV sunlight mm -hmm. and people yeah. touching it, so all the oils. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know the spe specifics of like conservation and preservation, mm -hmm. but like, you know, just like relatively compared to books that just normal books or like let alone all books that are 400 years old, it's in pretty good condition, um, you know, and it's not as simple as like just leave it and don't touch it, you know. Yeah. Um, it's like... 10 generations of humanity collectively taking care of this one thing mm. just because of the fact that it was pretty and it had important names. I mean, it sounds stupid yeah. if I say it like that, but like, you know, it's it's a really long effort and it, you know, it's it's not arduous, but it's... I mean, uh, this puts my journal like <laughs> into perspective. <laughs> I was like, I was like, wow, I'm so intentional in my journal. I use like a fountain pen to write in it. <laughs> Meanwhile, this is like <laughs> this boy is like <laughs> yeah. autographed by Roman emperors. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's the fact that like, you know, there are not a lot of these. I mean, there are a lot of these books around, but I don't think many survived. Or even though it was a lot, it was it, you know, it's like what. I think I saw a statistic that was like 25,000 of these like friend collection books mm -hmm. that were discovered. Um, but the fact that this one with all these names, with all these illustrations survived is quite impressive. Mm -hmm. And not all of them were, you know, as pretty or as um, well put together, I would assume. Yeah. Um, and going back to the whole preservation thing, you have to you also take in the factors like it has been through wars, <laughs> uh, weather oh. changes, and right? And like yeah. human interactions, and it still survived to this state, which is, you know, quite impressive. Just, you know, like paper alone doesn't react well to humidity over 400 years of time. <laughs> and I think my last point is that it's like, you know, it just translates to most well preserved objects of history. You know, it just takes so much effort. Yeah. And like, yeah, we don't need things to be preserved, you know? Mm -hmm. But um, like, if we lose this book, and I didn't know about it, or we all just didn't know about this friendship book. It's not going to change the world, mm. like, to be frank. But, you know, just because a few of us, I would assume, out of the seven to eight billion people of the earth, gave enough poop to care about this one book for <laughs> 400 years, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I just thought it would be, it would be something that at least I should share. You know, we, yeah, we don't need art. Or these items. Like, to be complete... I, maybe I have a very pessimistic view on things. <laughs> I don't think we need art. But I think what makes art or these objects important is because of the... Like, still, despite the tremendous amount of time that has passed, we still want them. Mm. And it is that want but not need that kind of makes it special. But yeah, that's all I have to say.
So, what time is it, Colin? It is fact time. Here's a question for you first. What is、okay. the population size of University of Sydney? Oh,、um, or、I、a guesstimate if you don't know. In terms of like enrolled students? Yes. I think I think it was like two to three k. Wait, one only? Wait, does that does that, that seems a bit k、low. like two two to three thousand? Yeah. No, no. Wait, what? Really? Wait, I might. <laughs> Let me search this up. I might be no, a wait, order of magnitude off. University of sorry, yeah, that's、like、the amount of that's the amount of doctoral students. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow, wait, I've got no clue then. Probably in the tens of k's then. Yeah, I'm I'm searching this up. Your University of Sydney is seventy three seventy three thousand as of <laughs> August twenty nineteen. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say like, there's no way you guys have two thousand when HKU has like twenty something k. Like, you guys are probably way bigger. Hmm. In space, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, I was like, <laughs> you, you guys, yeah, you guys got space where we're just on a you know mountain. Actually, a side note before I get to the fact, I don't understand. Yeah, the logic of、yeah. like, let's establish the first institution of this colonized island. Where should we、Bottom. put it? Look at that! Look at that hill. That's like eighty-nine degrees. <laughs> there, <laughs> bam! Put it right there. <laughs> Actually, isn't that like it's so funny? Like so many schools in Hong Kong, not just like institutions, like also like secondary schools are just like、yeah. in mountains. Like why? Yeah, well, I guess like I mean like space and everything, but yeah, and I feel like especially Hong Kong Island, um, it's just. An island, <laughs> so like it's mainly slopes. And you look at Hong Kong Island, I guess urban planning. It's put it's unplanned urban planning. I mean, I don't take architecture,、mm. but I do know it is unplanned urban planning. That's why right, the right. roads are so, you know, squiggly and all over the place.、Yeah. But there is a system. But uh, it was I think it was like not as planned as let's just say the new territories of Kowloon. Hmm, makes、yeah. sense. Makes sense. Well, that was a fun fact. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, another fun fact—the actual one that I prepped this week.、Mm-hmm. Um, guess what the smallest university is in the world in terms of population, from what I gathered online. Can I get a general geographic region? Oh yeah, sorry. I meant like guess the number of students. You don't have to guess the oh, place. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, cool. Hmm. Let's say two hundred. <laughs> Okay, well, you were closer th- than I thought.、Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not two、uh, hundred. It's actually five hundred and fifty-eight students as of now、oh. at the、um, Scuola Normale Superiore di Pisa, Pisa,、oh. in Pisa, Italy. So, <laughs>、um, yeah, I think it's like a, it's, but it's also but still like top one hundred and fifty. Like in terms of ranking, so、mm. though they're small, they make a big impact. Very prestigious. So, you know, so that's a fun fact for you. That that is from what I've gathered online, the smallest university in terms of student population. I just realized how how dumb my estimate of UCIT's population was. Like,、mm. <laughs> our high school was already like nine hundred students. <laughs> yeah, and that's a small high school too,、yeah. <laughs> like comparatively. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah. Um, but also, like, don't you have classes that are like two hundred people? 
Yeah, exactly. I was like, <laughs> like the scale didn't really. <laughs> like imagine the course like intro to microeconomics or intro to business and finance. Like that will probably have several classes of hundreds of students. <laughs> oh yeah, I remember like bio 1001. It was right. packed. Yeah. So, but anyways, yeah, that's the fact of this week. Cue music. Hope you enjoyed. Yeah. And what do we learn today? Chase Ethics your coffee about... with water. <laughs> yeah, chase your coffee with water. Remember to get your drink for next time, Colin. And God bless Janice. Janice. <laughs> Janet. <laughs> I'm very sorry, Janet. <laughs> <laughs>